101.5 WHMP. Hello, Dan. Hey, Buzz. Well, you've seen me here in the studio being somewhat, well, studious. You're studious. You're studying for something. You got a quiz? Am I quizzing you, Buzz? Uh, well, actually, what I was doing is prepping. Not for a prepping. quiz, but uh, I haven't had the opportunity to review Donald Trump plaintiff uh, appellant versus United States of America. That is the 11th Circuit's opinion, case number 22-13005 that was just filed on the 21st of September. Um, it was a an appeal of Judge uh, Aileen Cannon's rulings. We've all heard about it, I think, but I haven't had a chance to read. But remind the, us, Buzz. 29-page. Uh, remind you? Yes. Well, I think you remember that what happened was there was a... Uh, over a three-week period, there were a couple of raids at Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. Uh, we have heard that the um, the archival um, entity that uh, the United States... Uh, wh- what is it? I'm drawing a blank. I was just reading about it. Anyway, <clears throat> that the uh, there were boxes and boxes of... Um, what should be the property of the United States contends the Department of Justice. Um, but instead, uh, either Donald Trump um, or his assigns removed them from the White House when he was vacating the White House uh, just before the inauguration of President Biden. And that there was a long uh, period of requests for him to return materials that um, are covered by the Presidential Records Act and other acts, including the Espionage Act of the United States, which uh, I'm quite familiar with because I, as someone who had top-secret security clearance, had to live um, with the restrictions that even my attorney's notes had to go through a clearance um, process, a review process, um, before uh, they would be unclassified or declassified such that I could have my own notes when I was representing Guantanamo detainees. So I'm quite familiar with the process which Donald Trump or his assigns and or his assigns completely ignored. You have a question on your lips. Though. I have a several, but uh, is he, are, is the FBI investigating him for violating the Records Act, the Espionage Act, both? I mean, have they said what the investigation entails? Well, the search warrant has to say that there's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed, and among the crimes that were listed okay. in the application yep. for that search warrant, which is signed on oath and affirmation, because that's what the Fourth Amendment says. Mm-hmm. So you have to, in an affidavit, swear to tell the truth under pains and penalties of perjury that I believe, says the investigator who signs it, or mm-hmm. investigators who sign it, that there's probable cause to believe that these crimes have been committed and that there's evidence of the commission of those crimes Mm. in the location that we're seeking to search. Mm. Uh, In this case, Mar-a-Lago, including his his basement, his office. Right. I don't know what else. Yeah, okay. He claims his bathroom. I don't know where (laughs) he actually did go in. But but anyway, so what happened is, as we all know, that um, uh, the case... um, was brought by Donald Trump um, before U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, and that she precluded 
the Justice Department from going any further with its investigation um, and precluded them using any of the 11,000 documents that allegedly were in these boxes and boxes that were taken from Mar-a-Lago in this search, um, including what the FBI and Department of Justice alleges was 100 uh, documents. By documents, it doesn't mean one page. Many of them are multiple, multiple pages. Right. They were marked classified. With, uh, class, classified. And um, she precluded them even using that as part of their investigation at this point until a special master has reviewed all 11,000 documents. And she gave the special master something like 90 days to conclude that. It seems like a lot of documents to cover in 90 days. He has a team, right? Well, I suppose he can convene. He being Raymond Deary, a retired United States district judge who was on the short list proposed by Trump and was agreed to by the Department of Justice and was appointed by Judge Aileen Cannon. Mm. So uh, after she ruled that, the and we won't go into what the special master did, but what we all know is the special master effectively uh, parroted what the Department of Justice had been saying was its position in his first uh, order as special master. However, he, he, he said, what makes you say that these classified documents, and by the way, it's against the law to remove classified documents and put them in a place that's not secure, like a secured facility or the like, mm. to bring them to your resort, your residence, is absolutely illegal in, in the United States and is a violation of the Espionage Act. Mm. So, uh, of uh, which is, if anybody wants to find it, I can give the citation. It's 18 United States Code, Section 793, Subsection D. Are you asleep yet? No. All right. I'm fascinated by these things. So, so here's what happens. Judge Aileen yeah. Cannon makes this ruling, appoints this special master. Okay. <clears throat> Department of Justice, in what many have concluded was tactically a, quite a shrewd move by the Department of Justice, whether it was Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, um, or uh, someone who works under his auspices who decided they thought the best thing to do rather than a complete um, appeal, which would take a lot of time, to just ask the 11th Circuit to look at her reasoning for saying that those 100 classified documents have to be reviewed by someone other than the Department of Justice and the FBI. And so they looked, so they asked court in the 11th Circuit to review that portion of her order that pertains to just those 100 classified documents, which the court did the day before yesterday. And yesterday we were so busy, I didn't get a chance to do what studiously I had to do when you just walked into the studio and found me reading it. I got to say this. Mm. I've been doing this for 45 years, maybe 43 years, maybe 44 years. I'm not sure if I've ever read as clear a spanking of a district, U.S. district judge. This is a spanking. She was spanked. Wow. Wow. And this panel, what happens in the circuit courts of appeal throughout the country, this happens to be the 11th Circuit, which is down south there. <clears throat> um, two of the three judges on the panel were also Trump appointees. How many judges are there total, do you know? 
On the Eleventh Circuit, yeah, there are nine. There are nine. Six of them are Republican appointees. Mm-hmm. Um, but what always happens is a panel of three are appointed because you can't always have nine doing all the work. Oh, right, right. So the Chief Justice of the Circuit, okay, which sometimes that Chief Justice rotates. Mm-hmm. Um, Merrick Garland famously was Chief Justice of the, the DC Circuit. DC Circuit, yeah, right. Appoints a panel. So in this case. One Democrat appointee, one and two Republican appointees comprised its judge panel, and they were unanimous and quick. It took them like a day and a half. Wow. They came up with a 29-page opinion that was unassailable. Whoa. Um, what, 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 what was it that they said? This is what they said. They started off by saying that uh, they review the procedural posture of the case, the history of the case. They give the factual basis of what the agreed-upon facts are, and then they talk about what's in dispute. And what's in dispute in this case is those 100 documents and the reasons why she said the special minister has to, A, be able to review them, and that the DOJ may not use them and may not continue its investigation. The FBI may not continue investigating until the special master has ruled on whether or not they're classified. Mm. And this is what they said, number, the first thing they said. In footnote four of what I was just reading, the panel explicitly said that she was wrong uh, in claiming that there was a suggestion that the FBI was just doing this in order to harass Donald Trump. They said, um... I don't think so. By the way, the Daily Beast does a nice piece on this. If you want to read about it, um, I think that was two. I'm going to add ago. that to my weekend reading. Yeah, it was from two days ago, but it's it's really good. And and in then if you, if you want to click on the ruling, it's uh, yeah. a hot link. You could read the same twenty nine page opinion that I just did, um, which is uh, nice to be able to do. Um, so they explicitly say that she is wrong. They say that look. If you, for what she said the FBI might be doing, which is just designing this process solely to harass a U.S. citizen, in this case, Trump, um, they say, no, the Supreme Court has recognized that this is, you have to prove all of these things. You have to prove that there is no basis in law, that the only purpose is to employ arrests, seizures, threats of prosecution under color of that statute, for the sole purpose of harassing appellants. And then they go on to say the plaintiff, meaning Donald Trump, hasn't even made that allegation. He has presented no evidence to show that they just said in open court, this is just to harass us and there's no other purpose for it. Right. And, they the, judge, and the judge just took it. And the judge, she didn't rule that they'd done it. She said there's sufficient question about whether uh-huh. they've done it only to harass him. Oh, okay. The plaintiff raises a good point, she says, and they say, no, he doesn't. Right. There is no evidence, evidence. that that's the only reason uh, why they the did FBI this. FBI harassment. You know, hmm. secondly... Um, is that, and I'm going to guess that's pretty unusual for uh, an appeal. I court. suppose. I, I wish it was. I mean, there are times where somebody's just targeted because they're black. Somebody's right. targeted because of their political I'm sorry, I meant, I meant for an appeals court to rebuke a judge that way. With directly, that language? With that language, that saying, directly? Yeah, saying everything except, what are you, an idiot? They yeah. didn't say that to her, but... <laughs> 
Right. Uh, if you read between the lines, uh, I read a clear, what are you, an idiot? Right. There's no evidence at all suggesting this is there, There's a sound basis in what the DOJ, DOJ is suspicious of and what they contended there's evidence of in their application for a search warrant. Mm. They name the crimes. It's not just to harass him. And they were so, they, there was forbearance on the part of the authorities. They waited a really long time before they got a search warrant. They begged, please give us back our documents. At least tell us what's there. Right. The lawyer said there's nothing there, and they knew that there was something there. That's how, That's they, how they, all this yeah, uh, transpired. That big lie has been well publicized. Okay. Yeah. So the second thing they did is they said that the threat that they, that they um, this is what Trump contended. He said that the threat that the Department of Justice criminal investigation uh, it results in is that a criminal that the threat of a criminal prosecution causes him extreme harm that no other American would suffer because he's an ex-president. So the mere fact that they're investigating to see if he committed a crime is in and of itself an offense to him. <laughs> You're laughing? Well, so did the 11th Circuit. <laughs> they basically said, we find it extremely unpersuasive the plaintiff's insistence that he's harmed by a mere threat of a criminal investigation makes no sense. And then they quote a case, um, the name of which I won't make fun of because uh, it will violate the FCC's CC, rules really. if I make fun of the name of the case. But you can find it at 309 U.S. 323, a Supreme Court case. Third, they find that um, this injunction, in order to have an injunction, Dan, um, in state court and in federal court, you have to prove certain things. You have to say, I want you to stop, in this case, this investigation, because there's a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits of what we're going to do. That is, that um, we... Trump are likely to win, therefore stop them from doing what they're doing right now, and that there's irreparable harm that will result if you allow them to continue doing what they're doing. And they said, none of those factors exist here. There is no reasonable likelihood that Trump is going to win. There is no irreparable harm for them just doing their job and investigating to see whether any crimes were committed. Oh, jeez. And so they sort of shoot that down. They then uh, look at the judge's distinction between the intelligent community and the FBI, and the court says it's untenable. This is what they said. They said, the FBI shouldn't be working with these uh, uh, classified documents to see whether or not they were, in fact, classified. That should be the intelligence community. The FBI is ill-suited to do that. And the 11th Circuit said, FBI's no, they're not. Doing, yeah, they've been doing that for a long time. They've been doing it for a long time. It's their right. job. Of right. course they should be doing it. And your argument is the distinction between the intelligence community and the FBI is quote-unquote untenable. Um, the circuit then agreed with the, that the special master, Judge Deary, that they agreed with the Justice Department. He shouldn't be reviewing the classified documents. We have people in the FBI and in the Justice Department whose job it is to review classified documents. They can determine whether or not they were properly classified or unclassified. We don't need to wait till Deary reviews it. Now and that's what they said. Okay, so then, they can proceed. So that basically allows the FBI to continue their investigation using uh, the documents that are are there. Exactly, and okay. perhaps the most significant of everything that the panel did, they found that. Department of Justice had already 
You ready for this one? Yes. This is almost a quote. This is a paraphrasing. It's almost a quote. That the Department of Justice had already satisfied the most important element of an eventual prosecution under the Espionage Act, which goes on, and you could read it, uh, whosoever shall. And you read what the Espionage Act forbids in that section that I quoted before, that's 793. It basically says, whoever having lawful possession of a document then keeps it. If it's a national defense involved, classification thing, that's illegal, it violates the Espionage Act. It's like embezzlement. You might be the treasurer of a bank, but that doesn't mean you could take a million dollars home, right? <laughs> so it you're doesn't. lawfully in possession of the it while you're working as a banker, but not when you take it home. That's true for the president and classified information. Oh so I... Uh, I really enjoyed that 29 pages. I'm, I'm quite uh, thrilled to really understand their reasoning instead of relying on the media. And I think we have to take a break. What do you think? I think we do. I agree. Let's take a break and come back in a couple minutes. Have everybody stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. To the boats where our immigrants here That big wall is the new frontier well, Donald Trump makes me wanna smoke crack Go to Canada and have a This week's Shop Tuesday is Slancha. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Slancha releases gift certificates for their restaurant in Holyoke. High up on Jarvis Avenue with a view of Holyoke and beyond, good food and drink, lunch and dinner daily. Plus, a private upstairs party room with a bar. They say it on the old sod and they say it in Holyoke. Slancha, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no-hassle, negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. Rob Avery from Lundgren Honda. We're all looking to get the most for our money when it comes to buying gas. How is your gas mileage doing? Is it as good as when you first got your vehicle? Let Lundgren Honda help. We will have one of our technicians perform an express oil change service. It will change your oil and filter and fill the engine with the correct oil. Check and set the tire pressures to the proper specs and make sure that your air filter is clean. All of these make a big difference when it comes to gas mileage. Call, stop by, or make an appointment online. Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. 
That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray on The Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And hello again. We are, uh, so that's the story that uh, with Donald Trump versus United States of America, I want to thank Circuit Judges Rosenbaum, Grant, and Basher for extremely well done, very quickly uh, done. They recognize the importance, the national importance of this uh, case, and I think they addressed everything so well. I'm really impressed. Um, on the state level, um, we would be remiss not to mention that all of us have gotten, I hope, all registered voters in Massachusetts have gotten our... Uh, uh, information for voters, that red booklet that we get from uh, the Secretary of the Commonwealth um, with information for voters. I really encourage people to read it. Um, there are only three ballot questions that are mentioned in it. That's because the deadline uh, wasn't until September 9th that the fourth question um, came. The fourth question is one that I'm very passionate about. We've talked about it on the air. We talked about it with Attorney KSM of the Center for New Americans uh, this past week. But question four involves eligibility for driver's license. And I think that you really uh, should go online and take a good look at it, read it very carefully. What, what, what happened here back in May is my memory, both the House of Representatives and the Senate in Massachusetts both passed overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, a long-fought, uh, long-debated, long-crafted um, law that allows uh, undocumented folks to get to be eligible for driver's license if they meet certain criteria here in the uh, in Massachusetts um, what happens is the governor Baker vetoes that bill um, which had passed in May I'm at the end of May um, then on June 8th or 10th um, there was an overwhelming override, far more than the two-thirds required um, of his veto. But um, a, a group decided to circulate a petition to put it on the ballot to see whether or not we should overrule the legislature's determination. I think that the group is called Fair and Secure Massachusetts. At least that's the group that wrote to it. Uh, a fellow by the name of John Milligan writes in oppositions. He asks us to uh, to um, 
vote no uh, against it. Uh, I am a big supporter of this bill. I say vote yes, yes, yes for this bill, question four. But you should do your own research. And, you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the protections that require that they, uh, uh, someone who's undocumented uh, get a license, they have to come in with a valid, unexpired foreign passport or a valid consular identification document. They also have to have an unexpired driver's license, either from another state or a territory or from their own home country. If it has to be interpreted, there has to be a certificate uh, that it's a valid interpretation for our registry officials. They could have an unexpired foreign national identification card or a marriage certificate. There has to be photographic evidence of what they look like. Um, there are so many protections here, and, and um, they may not vote. They have to sign it under pains and penalties of perjury. They may, may not get a real ID. They're just getting a, a driver's license. It means that they can get insurance so that if they hit you, that you are in, there's insurance to cover your injuries, et cetera. Question four is really important. Take a good, hard look at the information for voters, and you can check your own registration status by going to vote in ma, V-O-T-E-I-N-M-A dot com, and you put in your name, and they can tell you what your registration status is. You have between October 29th and November, and I'm sorry, up to October 29th. Yeah, October 29th. To, uh, to register to vote. Did you go through all the questions, Moses? I'm sorry, I wasn't paying I attention. I did, but I think we're out of time now. We, are. we have Duke uh, coming up. Um, I would like to go through them, but I've gone through all, all four of the questions pretty carefully, and I'd like to talk about them, and we have time to do that. But I do want to encourage people to make sure you're registered. There will be early voting, which we all know that'll start on October 22nd and last until November 4th. And, of course, Election Day is November 8th. So um, please do not fail to vote. It's uh, one of the few things we're asked to do as citizens of this country. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back um, with Fair Play with Duke Goldman. Um, I love this portion of the week. Be right back. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz is brought to you by Lundgren, family run since 1964. Experience it in Greenfield. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A South Hadley man is facing prison time after he was found guilty of indecent assault and battery on a patient. 42-year-old Edward Costick was convicted by a jury after a two-day trial in Northampton District Court. He was charged with three counts of indecent assault and battery on a patient in his care in January of 2019. Costick was a physical therapist at Cooley Dickinson Hospital Rehab Services. Sentencing is scheduled for September 27th. The Northampton School Committee held a special meeting last night to discuss a bomb threat last week. Superintendent Janelle Pearson Campbell said the threat started around 2 p.m. on September 13th when district officials were notified of a potential threat made in a group text. 911 was called. The district assisting policies required a 911 call to be placed whenever information is obtained that is believed to be a possible bomb threat. So the situation can be assessed and appropriate plan of action can be put into place. 
Amid concerns from parents over the time it took for them to be notified, Pearson Campbell said they tried to balance the public's right to know and student privacy rights with district security needs. Officials say a man suspected of firing multiple shots in a West Springfield neighborhood was not targeting any of the three school buildings nearby. School was delayed for two hours Thursday morning out of an abundance of caution as police pursued the man who fired gunshots adjacent to West Springfield High School, West Springfield Middle School, and Fossey Elementary. 34-year-old Michael Linkowski of Morgan Road was arrested after being tased by police. He faces multiple charges. Bright and breezy this afternoon, a high of 56 to 60. Clear tonight, that breeze sticks around. Overnight lows of 34 to 40, then mostly sunny on Saturday with a high of 64 to 68. Back into the low 70s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here, and if you don't know me, I'm the host of the weekly Saturday show, The Cambridge Connection, on WHMP.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. For the last year, I've been privileged to connect you, our listeners, with experts from a variety of financial industries and organizations that offer assistance and education to help everyone become more financially fit. See you on Saturday. School is back in session, and that means FAFSA time. Learn what you may not know about filling out FAFSA forms, Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. We're now a mile and a half above the Greenfield drinking supply. There is a uh, dump that's been up here probably for many decades. So we're interested in drawing attention to this because, as I said, it is a source of the Greenfield drinking supply. So this is the Whetstone Brook. It's one of the tributaries to the Connecticut River. It flows up from the hills at like Hogback and Marlborough down east until it meets the Connecticut River right in the middle of downtown Brattleboro. It's pretty heavily impacted when it gets into town here because it's an urban river. Like all of our waterways, it deserves our care and attention. The Connecticut River Conservancy's Source to Sea cleanup is September 23rd and 24th. It's Monty. You can join me on the 24th for the Green River portion of the cleanup or find a cleanup near you by going to ctriver.org. The Northampton Radio Group's support of the Source to Sea cleanup is made possible by UMass 5 College Credit Union and USA Waste and Recycling. Join the Source to Sea cleanup. Sign up at ctriver.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And how lucky are we that we get to end the week with fair play with uh, Duke Goldman, historian and social justice uh, seeker uh, and uh, great educator. Hello, Duke. Hey there, Buzz. How are you? Well... I'm kind of excited, I'm interested in what you wanted to talk about today, uh, because I've always been interested in it. The way that you couched it for me was, how do we distinguish harmless legend in sports lore from a harmful distortion? So why don't I just throw it to you and you explain what you have in mind and what you'd like to talk about? 
Well, I am going to talk mostly about baseball because it's the subject I know best in sports. But I will start out with football because I'm going to tie this to an earlier show. We talked about the former Washington Redskins and how they got their name. And the story that was put forward was that their coach, a gentleman by the name of Dietz, was Native American, and it was being named in honor of him, except it turned out he wasn't Native American, and it was a myth. Well, this led to something rather harmful because the Washington team was called a vicious racial racist slur um, for many, many years, and a succession of owners did not want to change it. This is the danger inherent in mythology, which may start from something that seems innocuous. Let's celebrate somebody who, you know, has, has native roots. Well, where does it lead? So let me turn to baseball, because I know it better. And the main uh, vein of mythology in baseball lore is that of the origins of the game. And I am astonished when I discover this, but I continue to discover this time and time again, that even well-versed baseball fans still think that Abner Doubleday invented the game of baseball. When this has been not just disproven, it, it is a, an absolute falsehood with zero truth to it. Abner Doubleday, purportedly in 1839, diagrammed a baseball diamond um, in Cooperstown, New York. And that was the story that a commission in the early 1900s, commissioned by uh, Albert Spaulding, who was an early president of the National League um, and was a, an America First guy. Um, and, well, this story had no truth at all. Abner Doubleday, there was no evidence ever stepped foot in the town of Cooperstown in his entire life. <laughs> um, he was in West Point that year. His real claim to fame is he, he, he ordered the first shot in the defense of Fort Sumter in the Civil War, the first battle of the Civil War. Um, but he had absolutely nothing to do with baseball at all. Um, but based on a letter that an 86-year-old mining engineer, whose first name was also Abner, Abner Graves, wrote to this commission claiming he saw Abner Doubleday as a little boy when Graves was a little boy designing this field, the commission decided that baseball was founded in Cooperstown, which led 30 years later in 1939 for the Hall of Fame, actually 1936, 39 was when the, the building uh, opened by 1936, they declared that since baseball was founded in Cooperstown, they would have the Hall of Fame there. Well, today we may look at it and say, wow, that's great. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful town. Uh, I love Cooperstown. I actually like the town better than I like the museum. Um, it's I agree with you. Town yeah. USA. I agree with you. Um, so, you know, there's an argument that says, okay, from this myth sprung something bucolic and beautiful and wonderful. And if it didn't happen that baseball was played in Cooperstown first, who cares? Right? Well, the counter argument is, and I think it's a strong one, that so many other myths sprung, spring from the beginnings of telling a story. So the next myth that was told was that Alexander Cartwright in 1845 was the real creator of baseball. Why? Because 
he he was the one of the founders of the New York Knickerbockers team, which played the first game of baseball in 1846 in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, Cartwright um, came up with some of the seminal rules of baseball, nine innings, nine people on a side, um, except none of that's true. The only thing that's true about it is Cartwright was a founder of the Knickerbocker Club. The game in 1846 was by no means the first game ever played, and Cartwright had nothing to do with those rules. And one of the reasons this is on the plaques at Cooperstown is because Cartwright's grandson, Bruce, um, doctored Alexander, the purported founder, doctored his diaries that he wrote (laughs) when he was traveling across America because his grandson wanted to promote the story that his grandfather was the Johnny Appleseed of baseball. And by the way, before we, before we, I also want to point out, when I went to Cooperstown, I think that the field that they played there is called Double Day Field. Of course it is, yes. Of course it yeah, is. Yeah, because there we go. Cooperstown is doing what so many people do. They're have, playing it both ways. They're, they're semi-admitting that there is no truth to it, but they continue to like to promote the, the story of it. Well, this leads to things like little kids reading books in, in their, their school libraries, assuming this still goes on, where they take books off the shelf that say Abner Doubleday, founder of baseball, and they have mistaken beliefs. But these mistaken beliefs go further, because when I attended a women in baseball conference that my baseball society Sabre held last weekend, I also learned that women were very involved in baseball in the late 1800s and early 1900s. They played on teams called Bloomer Girls that traveled around the country, and some of them were real good at it. But according to the women scholars I heard, part of what was going on in the early 1900s through the perpetuation of the Doubleday myth was a way to promote white male supremacy, and that was also a way of making sure that women did not get a foothold in the game of baseball. So there's so many avenues that these stories go. They may seem benign on their surface, um, but they are not. Um, And historians have a job, and the job is to continually disabuse people of mistaken notions. Um, I'm I'm afraid, Duke, by way of admission... I have. To, I think I'm one of those people that ought to be disabused of some of. I mean, baseball lore is the movie The Natural just resonated for me because there's something mystical and magical. I love that story about Babe Ruth pointing to a spot in in in, in the center field seats where he was going to hit that ball, and then he hit it there in order to. I think it was to. Uh, to, to well, he's yeah, he hit it to to uh, because supposedly, according to the story, a little kid in the hospital or something. Uh, no, that was it. That's a separate mythology. The the supposedly the Cubs had signed a player named Mark Koenig who had been a, a teammate of Ruth's, and they gave him a very small cut of the postseason money, and Ruth was exercised about it, and so he was going to show them something, and and so he pointed and said, "I'm hitting the next pitch clear to the next county," which of course he never did. But I love that story because it's just colorful story, right? I mean, it doesn't do any harm. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm again. There's a fine line. I'm not sure that story does any great harm. Um, As as it happens, The Natural, based on the novel by Bernard Malamud, in the last scene, uh, Roy Hobbs strikes out 
doesn't hit a home run. No. Yes, and for the Hollywood ending, of course, they turned it into something else. He knocks the lights out, and they were showered with with, uh, sparks as he runs the bases. Right. So, again, this brings the question to mind. You know, I'm one of those people that when I see based on a true story, I already start rolling my eyes. (laughs) And I get it that a certain amount of license is okay, but not the basic facts. Now, you could say with the natural, it's fiction to begin with. Okay, I get that. But when it's a real story and they have to change the ending because they want it to end out, things to end, you know, more positively, I have a real problem with that. I think we need to adhere more towards truth than we do. You mean I can't just say that my grandfather invented baseball? No, I, I mean, you know, I mean, your grandfather was invented baseball just as much as Abner Doubleday did. But that, <laughs> what does that prove? <laughs> well, what it proves is that we have to take a break. We are talking with Duke Goldman. I, I'm always learning when I talk to you, Duke, because I, I, I think I know it all. It turns out I don't know much. We're going to return well, to Fair Play right after these messages. Stay with us. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Sign up for Will Bike for Food, the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts annual cycling fundraiser presented by Stop and Shop. Every dollar raised provides four meals for those at risk of hunger. Ride 10, 25, 50, or even 100 miles on Sunday, September 25th, or ride your own miles on your own time throughout September. Registration is just 40 bucks and includes a t-shirt and an all-access pass to the C.E. Floyd after party with food, drinks, live music, and more. Sign up or donate to a team or individual at willbikeforfood.org. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC. Member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 
101.5 WHMP. This is Fair Play with Duke Goldman. So, so Duke, why do you think baseball is so prone to these um, uh, either complete lies or mischaracterizations or misunderstandings? What, what is well, it about baseball, baseball? Baseball goes back a long way in our society. It's seen as the American game. And it's a lyrical game. It's a game that much literature and poetry has been written about it. And, you know, this is part of the story of our society that, you know, lore springs up. People have explored for years the question of what, what the famous poet, poem, Casey at the Bat, who was it written about? Um, who wrote it? For the longest time, they didn't even know who wrote it. Um, so, you know, stories get promoted, you know, lies get promoted. So, again, you know, what do we call them? Are colorful stories lies, or are they just colorful stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can't say I have a definitive answer, but it, it does seem like baseball has had quite a few whoppers. And one of the biggest whoppers is one that's near and dear to the hearts of New Englanders, and that is that the curse of the Bambino occurred because the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees in 1920. And like a lot of myths, it's constructed out of a certain amount of truth and then exaggeration and distortion and eventually outright lie. Well, there was, so a, pro- there was a producer, the, the wealthy Frizzy, who uh, was, had a, a, a play that he had, a Broadway musical that he had to support, and that's why he sold Babe Ruth. Isn't that true? No, of course it's not. He was a Broadway producer, Harry Frizzy. Harry Frizzy... Um, sold Babe Ruth um, in the culmination of a major power play he was having with the other seven owners of the American League. And he was losing that power play and discovering that he didn't have a great future in baseball. So he did start to sell off his players. He did sell Babe Ruth. Um, and Babe Ruth was kind of a troublemaker at the time, and, and it wasn't at all clear. He'd had his first great offensive year in 1919, but nowhere near what he did later for the Yankees. So it wasn't entirely clear he was going to be a superstar. A lot of newspapers at the time praised the trade. Um, but the other thing was the play no-no Nanette that supposedly for Z traded Ruth to finance did not come out for five years afterwards. So <clears throat> it was not the case that the sale was done to finance that play. Well, okay, why is that so terrible? You know, it's a sort of a telescoping of the story. He was getting money. He was using the money for Broadway productions. Okay, that's fine, but that's not, that's not really what happened. And what was happening at the same time was Frizee was getting his character assassinated, in particular by Henry Ford, the great auto magnet who had a newspaper that he owned called the Dearborn Independent. And in that newspaper, several articles were written claiming that Harry Frizee was Jewish, which there was no basis, in fact, whatsoever. And this was part of what Frizee was dealing with because Ford was aligned with some of the owners that were against um, Frizee in this power play. Um, The story ended up becoming... A, a, a cottage industry for one Dan Shaughnessy, famous Boston short sports writer who developed this story, even though Shaughnessy actually didn't come up with the idea of The Curse of the Bambino, but he popularized it and got, wrote a book of that title, and 
then by the 1980s, every Bostonian was convinced that the Red Sox had not won the World Series for many, many years because of the trade of Ruth. Well, it, it wasn't just Ruth. They traded pretty much their whole team. And Tom Yawkey, who became the owner in the early 1930s, did not win anything from the 40s to the 70s, largely because he, his team was a racist team and they were by far the last team to integrate. Those aren't harmless mythologies. Those, uh, there's real consequences to those stories. I mean, trades, there are. trades happen. Yes, and the story is just not a, a complete story. It's, it may seem like, again, well, what does it have to do with outcomes? What it has to do with the more people think they know a story and they, they, they think that the story is complete, the more other elaborate stories develop. We've seen this happening in our, in our political sphere when we have candidates who spread blatant lies about elections and things like that. It's all of a piece. It, it's, it starts with sometimes a kernel of truth and then it's developed into a whole mythology. So my concern is to see that, you know, I, I'm all for a good story, but not when the good story gets in the way of basic facts and not when it spreads lies and distortions. Well, I wonder, um, Duke, Duke Goldman, you, you are an historian. You are a baseball writer. Um, what, baseball is a form of entertainment. It is, as a business, a business that's intended to entertain. So it's sort of more conducive to the development of uh, these sort of mythical, um, uh, whatever they're called, I guess stories is as good a word as anything else, that sort of come with the territory when you're talking about entertainment. Isn't that, you know, rumors and gossip that happens in the entire entertainment industry and uh, movie actors or uh, singers and rock and roll stars or baseball players? Isn't that part of the landscape? I do see that as part of the landscape. I, I guess I see as a, at least a, if not a clear, bright line separation, a, a difference between stories that that may perpetuate, you know, exaggerations about Babe Ruth eating 16 porterhouse steaks, and whether or not he actually pointed when he hit a home run, or, or you know, more more to the point, you know whether a team is named after somebody who in fact was Native American or not, because it then leads to, it leads to an outcome that becomes a problem societally. Um, or, as I said earlier, you know, if we're dealing with the actual origins of the story of baseball, I don't have a problem with Cooperstown being where it is, but I have a problem with the institution of Cooperstown and how Cooperstown continues to perpetuate false stories and refuses to do anything about plaques that say blatant falsehoods or leave out important stories. Right. The plaque I'm most concerned with is that of Judge Kennesaw Landis, the first commissioner of baseball, the person who became commissioner because of the power play that led to Harry Frizee selling Ruth and then eventually selling the Red Sox. And Landis, um, his plaque should say that he was an arbitrary and capricious leader. He made completely arbitrary decisions. He kind of, two wrongs basically made the Black Sox scandal come out right, the, the scandal in 1919 when, when the Chicago White Sox threw the World Series. And most importantly, Landis's plaque should say that he was a, an implacable foe 
of integration and that he was prominent in making sure that baseball took as long as possible. That baseball did not integrate until Landis died. But Cooperstown does not want unpleasant truths. Instead, they want to perpetuate pleasant myths. And that's where I see the connection. Well, let me ask you one more question. We only have about a minute and a half. Let's see if I can ask it quickly and you can answer it in time. Because right now we are watching this extraordinary run for 61 or for 62. Um, Roger Maris having hit 61 in 61, and we have Aaron Judge at 60. He got walked three times last night in the Red Sox game. I've heard people say that they were intentional walks. I watched the replay. They were not intentional walks. What do you think the baseball lore is going to say about things like that, about this run? You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I'm remembering when Hank Greenberg, a great Jewish slugger, hit 58 home runs and was near to breaking Ruth's record in 1938, and there were the same kinds of things. They're not pitching to him. Um, But back then, they didn't have the records they have today. You know, it's easy enough for us to look, to look at the replays and to see that, and I watched that game as well. They were pitching to judge. I don't think that will be as easily distorted. So there is something to be said for all of the tools that we have today. Some of those myths, you know, can be debunked more easily. than. And what we also have today is people like Duke Goldman setting the record straight for us, separating reality from fantasy. And as you say, that's an important thing to be doing in 2022 because far too few are doing that. Duke, thank you so much for joining us today. I always look forward to our conversations. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you, Dan. Everybody have a great weekend. It's going to be a great weekend and we look forward to being with you and sharing Monday afternoon. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. In a little tent, oh, and just like the river I've been running, ever since, it's been a long, a long time Coming up, it's Mayor's Monday, and we'll be discussing East-West, that is West-East Rail, and policing and education and COVID-19 protocols. All this with the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegardner, who will be our guest Monday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP, Live news, and information, news and news. talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, A Northampton Radio Group Station.